Probably you've seen a medical show or something where you know they're doing a surgery and there's an observatory where you can, you know, doctors in training can look down and watch what's happening in this surgery. So picture this morning that you get to sit in the back of a, uh, a classroom at one of the major business schools in America where you have these really brilliant MBA students and they're doing a case study. They're studying arguably the greatest movement in the history of the world and trying to figure out how this little band, this little posse of people has turned into billions of Christians. And so they start digging into the text of the New Testament. And being MBA students, they're looking very desperately for a plan. Uh, They're quite sure that if they just dig enough that there must be some sort of overarching strategy here for how this movement has captured the earth. It's gotta be a tactic. I mean, somebody had to have thought about this, right? I mean, somebody had to have known what they were doing. Surely they hired the best people on the Madison Avenue of ancient Jerusalem. I mean, surely they had to have hired PR people. I mean, if, you know, Great athletes and actresses and actors have PR people. Certainly, Jesus must have had a PR person. And of course, none of that's there. But that is not meant to say to us that strategies and tactics and plans and all that are bad. That's not Luke's point. Luke's point is, we sang it just a minute ago, salvation is of God. And salvation marches forward through the third person of the Holy Trinity, through God, as God does it. It doesn't mean that that having plans or tactics or strategies for doing ministry are bad. It just means that Luke wants you to know that you're invited into a life that includes all that, but a life filled with the Holy Spirit, a life that's energized and animated and infused with the Holy Spirit, it includes all those things. It catches all those things up, but it also transcends it. And so Luke is not keen to beat up on MBA students. Luke is keen to show us last week that spiritual formation happens through word and spirit. And now this week he wants to show us that evangelism happens by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preached word. And so while this story is on the one hand about Philip, um, he's a hero because he's the first to preach outside of Jerusalem, In a sense, the story's not about Philip, that Philip is kind of an excuse to tell a story about how the Spirit-empowered gospel spread and how it overcomes barriers, how it went to Samaria and to the unthinkable, a eunuch. Well, of course, this just kind of fits exactly what we read in our gospel lesson this morning. Jesus had said to these guys, go and make disciples of all nations, not just Jews here in Jerusalem. And not even just Hellenists, that is to say, Greek-thinking, Greek-speaking people who were immersed in Jewish culture. But you're to go make baptize, you're to go make disciples and baptize people everywhere in all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then here's the big tie-in from our gospel lesson to what we see in Acts. And I will be with you always. Yeah, how so? You're dead. Oops, no, how so? You're alive. Oh, I think I get it now. 
Maybe, well, no, because if Philip's in Samaria and James and John are in Jerusalem, how's Jesus going to be in two places at once? And then Jesus ascends into heaven, and the Holy Spirit is poured out, and we now have the answer to how it is that God will be with you always, every place you go, in every nation, even to the very end of the age. So there's no plan, no strategy, no tactic but there is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. There are some scholars who think that Luke maybe is even kind of chiding the, the, uh, the first apostles here, saying something like, you know, God told you guys to go everywhere. What are you doing sitting here in Jerusalem? Like, would you guys have ever gotten on with it? Or would you just sort of sat around in Jerusalem thinking about what it meant to be Jewish in this new way, in this new sort of Christian way? where their imagination might have been a bit short, persecution lengthened it. And really what drives them out, as our text said this morning, is this awful sort of persecution, this, this campaign of intimidation, especially against Stephen and the Hellenistic Jews, that is to say the Greek-speaking people who are immersed in Jewish culture. They somehow became the bad guys. So what you need to think about here is something like a civil war or some sort of horrible um, ethnic tension, some sort of racial tension. That's the kind of thing that was going on, and these guys were being driven out from their uh, kind of place of, of comfort and peace. You might think of it as the fruits of suffering. that they were living this kind of uncomfortable experience, but they were soon to see that God was gonna work through their hurts, through little hurts, through your kids being told they can't go to this school because you're followers of Stephen. No, you can't shop at this market. We don't trust you. You don't get invited to the dinner parties anymore. It was an insidious campaign of persecution against them, and, and the, the, you might say that there was a fruit from their suffering, that God was actually working through their hurts. And what they found out is, is that as they were driven out of their towns and villages and out of their social circles into these places that were um, very uncomfortable for them socially and unknown to them, even just sort of intellectually unknown to them, they found it's true, God's there. He's speaking. I mean, the Holy Spirit, the sovereign God, spoke in the passages we read this morning. He was there. He was in Samaria. He was working in the heart of that eunuch. Wherever they went, God was there, speaking and guiding and empowering. So forced to leave their home base, these Jewish slash Gentile followers of Jesus all became missionaries. And wherever they were scattered, the text, said they, the text says, they preached the message about Jesus. This first step in God's plan, remember Jesus had said to them, go into Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So this is the first step of these things being um, uh, accomplished as Jesus said they were. So then Philip here hears about uh, this eunuch. And I, I think that Luke highlights Philip and Peter and Paul 
for reasons that I'll show you here in a minute, not because you and I don't count, or not because only three or four people in sort of the history of, of the church count, but these guys are iconic because of what happens through them. So the highlight here from Philip is that he's preaching the message of the Messiah in Samaria. That's really the highlight. It happens to be Philip, but the real highlight is that this is happening in Samaria. And it's happening just the way it happened through Jesus. You'll notice the text said, when the people heard what he had to say and saw the miracles, these clear signs of God's action, these healings and deliverances, they hung on every word. So evangelism is happening through these first apostles, these first friends of Jesus, through signs and wonders. Some of us come from a background in which there was a phrase that was um, very, very famous called signs and wonders and church growth. And that phrase came from a, a very careful study of the New Testament and a very careful study of especially the two-thirds world, or you might think of as the global south, where there were hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of mil or millions of people coming to faith rapidly, there was almost always some sort of signs and wonders happening. Somebody would go into a village and they would pray for a dead child and the child would come to life and, and, and a whole village would come to faith. So this is something that has gone on from the very first times to today. Yet, Luke tells us in, in this text, he gives us a basic little caution when he gives us Simon. Simon, who wants to buy the Holy Spirit so that he can use it to kind of keep his magic business going and, you know, kind of get a new segment of the market here. Hey, you guys can do these things with your hands. That's a magic trick I don't get. Can I buy that from you? And that way I can sort of add that to my portfolio and I can begin to do that. And of course, as Eugene tells us, Peter says, well, you know, to hell with that attitude. You know, may that attitude perish. May it be gone. And again, the point here is this is about the sovereign God. This is something that the third person of the Trinity is actually doing this. This isn't merely a power. This isn't some sort of impersonal force. This is the personal God, and he is not to be bought and used for our own good. There's, of course, another caution in John 2, where John tells us that many people saw the signs that Jesus was performing and believed in his name, but that Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people, and he knew what was in each person. So yes, I have been around the block for many decades, and pretty much know anything there is to be known about the person and work of the Holy Spirit in a community of people. I've pretty much seen it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I wanna say this, as we're thinking about how the Holy Spirit shapes the Jesus life and us personally and in this congregation, I want to just go on record and say this, the answer to misuse is not no use. The answer to misuse is right use. The Holy Spirit is not just grieved by excess and stupidity and emotionalism and you know, kind of overwrought kind of stuff. The Holy Spirit in our text, actually, in the text of the Bible, the Holy Spirit is chiefly grieved by being ignored, by being quenched. This is why several times in the New Testament you were told not to quench the activity of the Spirit because it's the Spirit that creates the Jesus life in us and that helps us to create the Jesus life in others. 
So Philip's being used in this amazing way. The apostles in Jerusalem hear about it, and they're sent to Samaria to kind of check on what's going on, but not probably in some horrible sense, like we don't really trust what's going on, but to check up on it in the sense of embracing it and making sure that they're creating unity, because probably the apostles were at least worried about one thing, that there is some racial tension happening here, and that sort of the pure Jews aren't really liking these Stephen-following Hellenistic people, and now we hear that the gospel's breaking out in Samaria? Well, Samaria was basically a synonym for the impure, this mixed-race, hated group of people. You know, you sometimes hear jokingly it said that well, those people in the Mideast have a long memory. We know how, how far this hatred of Samarians goes back from Jewish Christians, or what would have been Jewish Jews, now Jewish Christians, 700 years these Samaritans have been hated. And then it sort of got a jump start 500 years before that. So you had seven years, then 200 years, and then another jump start. And so they've been carrying this around in their heads for generation after generation after generation. And what Luke wants to point up to us is that John, you know, it said Peter and John went to Samaria to check up on things. Do you remember who it was one day walking a dusty road with Jesus and James and John? as they were passing through Samaria, said, Jesus, do you want us, do you remember what they said? Do you want us to call down fire on this place? So now here you are a very short time later where John's being sent back to these people who he wanted to smote. He, he didn't think that their reception of Jesus was adequate, and so he wanted to call down fire on them. And this points to what I think is one of the biggest barriers for present-day evangelism, and that, and this is what I think Luke wants us to see, is our dehumanizing tendencies. You don't have to think about anything but our political discourse. No one's wrong anymore. They're baby killers, they're, you know, they're haters, they're whatever. I mean, you, you can't be wrong anymore. You know, you, the, you have to be somehow dehumanized. I have to dehumanize you in my heart and brain so that I can say these things about you. And, and uh, Luke is here showing us that, uh, that the Spirit is breaking those things down. And that as typical, and we're gonna see here in the next few chapters in the book of Acts, that this is kind of a typical big break with Jewish tradition to think that these Samaritans could actually these Samaritans could actually come to faith. Now it says that up to this point they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit hadn't yet fallen on them. And so the apostles laid their hands on them and they did receive the Holy Spirit. Now what Luke wants us to see here in what is known as kind of a Samaritan Pentecost, a major turning point in the history of the church is that these kinds of things don't happen without the Holy Spirit. I mean, I just can't impress upon you enough my trust in the Holy Spirit. Um, I work about as hard as anybody I know works, but I just look you in the eye and tell you that is not what I trust. And I think the smartest thoughts I can possibly think, but that is not what I fundamentally trust. And I seek wisdom from other people constantly, day in and day out, moment by moment. I'm seeking to use other people's brains. But it's not at the end of the day what I trust. At the end of the day, I've spent a long time trying to recognize the voice of God and to hear him. 
and to have the capacity to follow him. And we will not be in the years and decades ahead what God wants us to be as Holy Trinity without a capacity, a childlike faith to say salvation is of God. Transformation is of God. It is not of us. It, it's, it's just not. I don't care how good the thinking is. It's fundamentally an act of God. And what we're working on is being able to cooperate with that. So later it says that God's angel spoke to Philip. Well, there you go again. I mean, Philip didn't, didn't just wake up one morning and think, I know what I'll do. I'll witness to an Ethiopian eunuch. No, the Spirit of the Lord spoke to him again. And, and of course, the, the first hearers of this would have recognized instantly the kind of parallels with Elijah and Elisha, the kind of divine guidance that Jesus had promised in the upper room. Remember, Jesus had said to them, don't panic that I'm leaving. I'm gonna send you another comforter. He'll teach you, he'll lead you, he'll guide you. So what is Philip experiencing here except for the very thing that Jesus promised? That I'll teach you, I'll lead you, I'll guide you. And so he told him, you know, get up, go over to that road. So Philip gets up and goes, and then the Spirit speaks to him again and says, climb into the chariot. So you're sitting at a red light. The person next to you rolled down the window, and you, you, know, you hear the Spirit of the Lord say, get in their back seat. I mean, that would be kind of weird, right? And I, I think you have to think that Philip must have thought the same thing. Like, what the heck are you talking about, get in his chariot? He's, he's like a, you know, he's a mucky-muck in Candace's court. I'm not, you know, getting near his chariot. Who knows, you know, what, what, what could happen here? But Philip does as he feels the Spirit is prompting him to do. So he gets up to the eunuch. The eunuch's reading out loud, as they would have in those days, the passage from Isaiah. And it says, using this passage as his text... He preached Jesus to him. Remember what I said when we started last week, the word and Christian spiritual formation. This week, the word and spirit in evangelism. The text is our only message. We don't have a message other than the text. Only Jesus died in obedient, undeserving, sacrificial, suffering death to free us from sin. We don't have another story to tell but that one. And so when he hears him reading Isaiah 53, that's an easy one, to just say, yes, this is about Jesus. But I actually think, I mean, it would be kind of fun, but I actually think you could put me at a, star, at a table at Starbucks and just open the Bible and point to a text, and I think pretty much I could go from that text and tell you the story of the gospel. This is why you hear me so many times talk about the Bible as being one grand narrative. So, if you point to any scene, I can tell you the scenes that led up to that and, and, and where this story goes. And so he happens to have found him reading a great passage. But again, the point of this story here for Luke, the point for Acts is, the point of Acts, is that this eunuch professes faith and is baptized on the spot. Well, you could not have been a eunuch and been in the Jewish church. You would have been expelled. And so another barrier is broken this eunuch's brought into the church. This outsider who had no hope of any kind of Jewish inclusion is brought in. And I don't think it's an accident that Luke tells us that the very first convert outside of Jerusalem is a black man from Africa. 
because somebody listened to the Holy Spirit and crossed all kinds of barriers in their heart. He's black. He's from Africa. He's a part of Candace's court. He's important. He's a eunuch. Even if he comes to faith, what am I going to do with him? Do I have to start a new church? He can't be in our church. Our church won't accept him. Can you see the barriers that are going on in Philip's head? This is why we have to have the Holy Spirit, because on our own, we would just say, oh, well, that'll never work, or we can't do that. But what, what Luke is desperate for us to see is that underneath all of this is that the Spirit of God is working. So when this man's baptized, they come up out of the water, and the text says the Spirit of God suddenly took Philip off. So now you have the Spirit of God working, and again, what happens is that now he preaches the message in all the, village, all the villages around his route to Caesarea. Our psalm told us this morning to proclaim his salvation day after day, to declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all the peoples, and to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. So as I said I mean, I've thought about this passage always as kind of the, a biography of Philip. But really what this story is about is this. No matter how far a person seems outside, no matter what an outsider they might seem to us, the word and the spirit can find them. And that we're midwives to that process. And we get the clues for our action through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. When to speak, when to be quiet, when to come close, when to give space, when to listen, when to invite for coffee. If you'll take your life and put it in the work of the Spirit, that's the kind of thing Luke would say to us this morning that the Spirit wants to work through you. So persecution, suffering, pain, hurt is actually what drove the gospel and the Spirit guided it. I've been thinking this week for myself and I, I wonder for you, is there a journey for you to say yes to? Are there some things working in your life today that Maybe you've just sort of seen as inconveniences or pains or hurts or maybe somebody's misunderstanding you. Maybe there's some genuine persecution happening. I wonder, is there a journey for you to take? Is there a journey for us to take that when we take it, we will find the Spirit indeed working through us as well?